We're continuing our study through the Bible today using a version of the Bible called the story. It's a chronological version of the Bible, abridged, and I'm hoping that you have a copy. If not, you can use whatever version of the Bible that works for you. But let's do a quick inventory and see how many of you either brought the story or the Bible. Hold it up, please. Hi, wave it a time or two. Look at that. My goodness, 89.4%. What a wonderful representation of all of you who brought your story. We're in chapter 26 today, chapter 26. Every so often a minister has an opportunity to present that single message that he would present if it were his final message. Today is that day for me, and I'm grateful that you're here. Let's pray together, then we'll get to work. Most Heavenly Father, let your mercy please be upon this manifestation of your church called Oak Hills. Please bless our elders, our senior minister, Randy Frazee, and all who serve here. We pray, dear Father, that today we could see Jesus and just Jesus, that you would forgive the sins of the one who speaks. You know how many they are. Through Christ we pray. Amen. One of our elders, Jim Barker, tells a story of Claude Harmon. Claude Harmon, like Jim Barker, was a great golf instructor. In fact, his four sons all became golf instructors. And Mr. Harmon, on an occasion, gave this word of advice to his sons. Boys, whenever someone comes to you to learn to play golf, you will see in their swing ten different problems. Your job as their teacher is to find the one that causes the other nine. When you look at your world, you don't have any trouble seeing at least ten different problems. But what is the one that causes the other nine? You have a world full of problems. Everything from stinking economy to stinking attitudes. But is there one that causes the others? The Bible's answer to that question is a resounding yes. And according to the Bible, Jesus dealt with that particular problem, the fountainhead of all others, on the cross. And that problem was addressed by Jesus when he said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Don't these words bear a sense of completion? Christ didn't start a work on the cross. He didn't continue a work on the cross. But according to these words, he finished a work on the cross. So the great question is, what was finished? What task was complete? What mission was accomplished? How was the world different after the final breath of Christ than it was before. What happened on the cross that makes the cross such a big deal? Well, his enemies can help us find an answer. Yes, his enemies of all people because they inadvertently explain the cross for us. Look, if you will, on page 312 of the story. Or Matthew chapter 27, verses 41 through 42. If you're looking in the story, it's the next to the last paragraph. 
In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. You know what? Their assessment is accurate. Jesus could not save himself and us. He could save us by giving himself. He could save himself and abandon us, but he could not save both himself and us. Our salvation depends on him giving himself. Now, why? Why would that be? Why should salvation depend upon Jesus' death? Why, why couldn't God just pardon us? Why couldn't he just say, well, it's okay. I declare pardon for everyone. Like one French cynic said, the good God will forgive me. After all, that's his job. Isn't it God's job to forgive us? Why can he not just declare pardon? When you forgive someone, it doesn't require someone's death, does it? So why should God's forgiveness require someone's death? In other words, what is this algorithm through which God restores life to the world by the death of his son? Well, the answer to that question leads us to two of the great biblical truths. One is the holiness of God, and the other is the severity of sin. And I do not believe you can understand the story of God without understanding the holiness of God and the severity of sin. The fact that God is holy is foundational to Scripture. From the garden in the book of Genesis to the garden in the book of Revelation, God is portrayed as holy. That is to say, He is above. He is higher than. He's not just better. He's not just an improved version of us. But He is set apart. He is unique. His, his thoughts are not our thoughts, and His ways are not our ways. There's, there's something different about Him, totally and utterly different. And this is manifested in the way that He views sin. Scripture says that he is so holy, his eyes are too pure to look on evil. That he cannot tolerate wrong. There is something about our rebellion that stirs a holy disgust in God. There was the occasion when the children of Israel rebelled against God in the wilderness, and God said, for 40 years I was angry with that generation. And the word anger here literally means nauseated. Our actions can make him sick. In the last book in the Bible, Jesus talks about a church that met in the city of Laodicea, and they had grown lukewarm in their faith. And he said, I am so tired of you. I want to spit you out of my mouth. And it's the verb vomit. Not a very pleasant thought on a Sunday morning. But God's holiness, when God's holiness encounters our rebellion, it makes him sick. Odd that our sin doesn't cause the same reaction in us. We live in a generation, unlike any other since the coming of Christ, our generation has successfully removed sin from the discussion. And when we look at all of the problems and wonder what could cause all of the problems, sin has been removed as one of the options. It's no longer on the table. 
Check me out on this. Watch the documentaries about poverty, the documentaries about hunger, the documentaries about international conflict and, and war. Do you ever see anyone on 2020 or, or Dateline say, well, the problem is sin? That would sound so peculiar to us, so antiquated, so unsophisticated. We fault our genes, we fault our chemistry, our inherited moodiness, our education, our government, or the way we were potty trained. We fault everything. But according to God, the heart of the problem has always been the problem of the heart. We sin. That is to say, we refuse to acknowledge God and obey Him as our Creator. That our planet is populated by God-less people, and we make God-less decisions. We do not factor God into the equation. That's sin. To sin is to reject God as king, and then to make a play for His throne. Not only do we say He is not our king, we say, I am the king. And we play king of the hill. And the world is turned into this massive competition for who's in control and who has authority. According to Scripture, if we could somehow right that problem, then the other nine would be corrected. If we could somehow get rightly related to God. But the problem is our stubborn wills. We have not given to God His due. We have not rendered to God what he deserves and that is the submission of our entire will to his so how does a holy God respond to this does he just pretend that our stubborn rebellion is a regrettable lapse of concentration does he say well boys will be boys girls will be girls does he just condone our stubbornness does he just turn a blind eye no he could not and still be holy. A holy God must hate sin, right? Else he is not holy, and else there is no standard in the universe. A holy God cannot compromise his holiness by indulging our sinful or rebellious behavior. He must hate sin. Indeed, he must punish sin. So where does that leave us? Is God going to annihilate us? If he were to punish sin in us, we would have never gotten out of the Garden of Eden. But isn't it right? And who could fault him for destroying the last, every last cell and fiber and being done with the whole mess of mankind? He might do this if God were just holy. But with every ounce of God's holiness, there comes an ounce of God's love. He has this undying devotion to his children. There's just something about you that stole his heart. Who knows what it is? He just chooses to love us. Not because we're lovable, but because He is love. 
And so we have these two strong stallion emotions emerging out of the heavens, God's holiness in lockstep with God's love, loving his children, stubborn though we may be. God's love, God's holiness, wearing the same yoke, According to Scripture, he is the compassionate and gracious God, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Holy and love. In him, love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss together. He is at once a righteous God and a Savior. He is full of grace and truth. Paul compels us to consider the kindness and the sternness of God and declares God to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Do you see the holy love of God? Were God merely holy, we would have been destroyed. Were God merely love, the lack of correction and discipline would destroy us. A holy God cannot disregard wanton rebellion, and a loving God cannot disregard his children. But a God of holy love will do what no one can imagine. He will become a human being, and he will lead a sinless life, and then he will die a sinner's death in our place. This is the drama of the cross. Look carefully at the lower section of page 313, or if you'd prefer, just listen as the words of Matthew and John intertwine to describe the hour of darkness. It was now about noon, and darkness, had, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge, and he filled it with wine vinegar. And he put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split. The tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified. And they exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. So God enlists all the elements of nature to emphasize the solemnity of this moment. He ebonies the sky. He shakes the earth. He cleaves the rock, and he rips the curtain in the temple. He untombs the entombed. He unveils the holy of holies. And even the ruthless Roman guards are beginning to see the uniqueness of this one who hangs on the center cross. Yet it is the words of Jesus which command center stage. 
For it is out of the darkness and it is through the mist that Christ speaks. And when he speaks, he opens those busted lips and looks heavenward toward the sad sky with a bloody eye. And he cries out. This is a strong verb in Greek. It's used elsewhere to describe the roar of a lion. Matthew says it. He cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We read words so heavy with emotion, and we say, why? We are unaccustomed to seeing Jesus and forsaken in the same sentence, in the same scene, in the same moment. Jesus forsaken? Does Scripture not say, I have not seen the righteous forsaken? And assure us that God does not forget, forsake his saints. Indeed, it says this. But folks, do you understand that in this hour, Jesus was not righteous? In this hour, the Holy One was not a saint. For in this hour, God put on him the wrong who never did anything wrong so that we could be what? Put right with God. God placed our sins on his son and punished them there. God placed our sins on his son and punished them there. He poured his sin-hating wrath out on his son so he could pour his soul-saving love out on us. As John Stott states, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. God is not the indulgent God who compromises his holiness in order to save us. He's not the indignant God who ignores his love and unleashes his fury and consumes us. He is the great God who at once loves his children and punishes their sin and does so by putting that sin on the sinless one. And the cross then becomes that safe and happy shelter, O refuge tried and sweet, O trysting place, meeting place, where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. Do you see the beauty of the cross? I'm concerned that you don't. I'm concerned that you don't. I'm concerned that we might be missing the great doctrine of substitution. This is the morrow of Scripture. This is the heartbeat of the Bible. I'm concerned that we might reduce God into that one who does us petty favors, gets us promotions, increases our paychecks, and finds us parking places that we might have this small, small God who does nothing more than to come in and step out of our lives whenever we call him. Do you not understand the immensity of this gift? What God has done for you offsets any difficulty you may ever have for the rest of your life. The scales have been massively tipped in your favor. Do you know what this says about your value? About how much he cherishes you? 
He owns you. He bought you. And he bought you not with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of his son. And when he was forced to choose between an eternity without you or an eternity with you, he said, I'll do whatever it takes to make sure you're with me. What else do you need to feel good about yourself? Do you not see that God cares so deeply about you? Oh, dear prodigal. Oh, dear wandering sheep. Oh, dear stubborn heart. Do you not see that the King of kings, this is the beauty of the cross. And do you see the tragedy of missing the cross? The writer of Hebrews asks this great question. How shall we escape if we neglect such a, what's the word? Great salvation. In other words, what's plan B? If Jesus is not our substitute, who is? I can't be yours. You can't be mine. Because I have my own sins, and you have your own. The Lamb of God must be pure and perfect and sinless. And so if my sins and guilt are not placed upon him, then they're placed still upon me. Which is to say then that I will stand before judgment covered in my own sin. And my sins will result in the punishment that I deserve. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? But the great promise of God is that he has taken our sins and placed them on his son so that his son could take our place and the one who knew no sin became sin for us. Some years ago, on October 16, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed after taking off from the Detroit airport, killing 155 passengers. There was only one survivor, a four-year-old girl by the name of Cecilia. And when the rescuers found her walking among the rubble and the, and, and, and the destruction, she was in such good condition that they honestly wondered if she had been on the flight. But when they checked the list of passengers, there was Cecilia's name. She survived because her mother, Paula, as her mother perceived that the plane was about to crash, her mother unbuckled her own seatbelt and she knelt in front of her daughter and she put her body over the top of her daughter and she wrapped her arms around her daughter. And consequently, the mother felt the full force of the fall. And Cecilia did not. That is what God has done for you. He has wrapped himself around you in the form of Jesus Christ. And he has not pretended that there is no fall, for we have rebelled against God, and consequently we have fallen from him. But because he loves us, he has wrapped himself around us, and he has felt the full 
force of the fall and the sin-hating wrath of God has been satisfied and the child-devoted love of God has been manifest. Can I say it one more time? Out of his sheer unmerited love for us, God devised this plan of salvation where the guiltless Christ took on the unrelaxed punishment of the guilty and he died not like a sinner, but he died as a sinner. Martin Luther stated it like this, by a wonderful exchange, our sins are not now ours, but Christ's. And Christ's righteousness is not Christ's, but ours. So where does that leave us? It leaves us knowing that his sacrifice is a sufficient one. And your merits do not enhance it and your mistakes do not diminish it. The sacrifice of Christ is total, unceasing, and accomplished. Christ finished the task of salvation. It only falls to us to accept it. As one writer stated, the prison has been stormed, the gates of the prison have been opened, but unless we leave our prison cells and go forward into the light of freedom, we're still unredeemed. Have you stepped out?